Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Counterforce podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone. We were just listening to Blackbird McKnight's Funka Rockaholic from his 2009 solo album, About Funkin' Time. Last year, I made a list of every concert I've ever been to, and it got me thinking about who else I really need to see. And George Clinton and P-Funk were top of my list. And I did this just in time, because last year he started his farewell tour. I saw they were coming to Beverly, Mass. the same week I was going to be vacationing around there with my family. And I went, and it blew me away. They opened with Super Stupid, which is one of my favorites. And then in the middle of the show, they did Maggot Brain. And Blackbird's playing was just so intense, I was completely floored. It really hit me hard, and it was the most emotional I've ever been at a gig. It took me a few songs to recover to get back into the good time vibe of the show. And the gig was so good, I drove to Kentucky a few weeks later to see them again. And it was another killer show. I've been aware of Blackbird since I was a teenager getting into Funkadelic. And also around that time, my high school band teacher loaned me Herbie Hancock's Manchild album that has Blackbird on it. And besides P-Funk and Herbie, Blackbird's played with Miles Davis, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and a whole bunch of other people. It's a real pleasure to talk to him for this episode of The Counterforce. So without further ado... So tell me about when you first fell in love with music. That probably would have happened when I was in the cradle, uh, being rocked by mom and pop and listening to the jazz and whatever music they played in the house. Pop had a great collection of uh, jazz, blues. Mom liked uh, rhythm and blues. So there was a lot of music going on in the house. Anybody that you could think of, Miles, Train, uh, uh, Moody, James Moody, Mom like Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, uh, Stevie Wonder, blah, 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 blah. So when did you start playing music yourself? I was told I picked up the guitar around age seven or so. My grand, uh, my uncle, LG, gave me a guitar from up north in Fresno. They stayed right next door to, to my uh, grandma and pop. And I went over there and I evidently kept playing with the guitar over there and uh my uncle lg gave me an acoustic guitar around age seven and uh the rest is history so what what were you listening to yourself what were your first discoveries on your own my first discoveries on my own was probably rock the same thing everyone else was listening to rhythm and blues and then we discovered my when i say we i mean my brother and i we came up together. So uh, the Beatles, the Stones, Dave Clark Five, the Temptations, James Brown, you know, the same thing everybody was listening to. Every, every kind of music pretty much fascinated me. I like uh, the Tijuana Brass back then, uh, Classical Gas. I forgot the guy's name who did it, but I was listening to all types of music, you know, I, I liked music before I started playing music. I really enjoyed music. I got a little tape recorder when I was uh, in grade school, and I used to tape everything that came on the radio. So just to give you an idea how much I, I loved music at the time. So when did you get your first electric? First electric had to come around age 13 or 14. It was a Tysco Del Rey 4 pickup. <laughs> $79 special <laughs> with the wiggle stick. Nice. So you, you played acoustic for a long time before picking up an electric. 
Yeah, I had probably two acoustic guitars and maybe a couple of nylon guitars. Funny, but yeah, that's that's the way it, it happened. You beat one guitar up and then you'd have to get another one or, you know, you know how that goes. Yeah. I noticed you don't use a pick. Yes, I do. You do? I do use a pick, but I use it sparingly, especially okay. soloing. I use it all of the time, pretty much for rhythm. But uh, I, I do use a pick. It's in there. <laughs> you okay. can't see it. Cause I, I, I was up close at the Kentucky show this summer, and it seemed to be all, you know, index. One finger. finger? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one finger. It changes. Um, it'll change from one finger to three fingers to pick to anything. Whatever feels comfortable at the time for me. Okay. It's just what... I gra I gravitated to. I don't have an explanation for that. It's just that's what my body and mind tell me to do when I'm playing. You know, if I record a lot at, in my house, and uh, I'll find myself more times than others not using a pick, trying not to use a pick. Go figure. <laughs> I I don't know why, but I probably saw somebody do it and got got the notion. Do you notice a difference between them? Because I notice when I'm playing with my finger. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. I find I can get a lot more rhythmic stuff just going with the one finger as opposed to a pick, and I don't know why either. I like that, too. That's funny <laughs> you picked that out. Yeah, I like that. Uh, probably on Dog, which is the most noticeable, Atomic Dog, I stroke with one finger. Just feels feels good to me, what can you say? Yeah. So when was the first time you heard Hendrix? First time I heard Hendrix was uh, around 68. I was listening to KHJ Channel 98, I think. And they played Foxy Lady. It's funny because they didn't say who it was, but I knew that it was Hendrix. Before I saw Hendrix, I had actually seen him in a newspaper. Uh, Look Magazine, actually. I was in a barbershop getting my head cut off clean. And uh, I was flipping through the, uh, the Look Magazine, and they had pictures of the Monterey Pop Festival. And among them were this guy playing with his teeth and laying on his back, and his dress was wild and all of that. So I saw that, and I was like, wow, that's, that's heavy. <laughs> back then, that was the word. And I went home, and sometime later, they played Foxy Lady on uh, the radio. And I I knew that was him. I was like associating the, the pictures with the with the sound. It's like it's gotta be this guy. And it was. <laughs> so that was about the first time I heard Hendrix, about sixty-eight. Did that change everything for you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> I I immediately went there. Uh and there was a lot of good music back then. I mean, you had you had a lot of you had a lot of bands and a lot of good bands playing music with a lot of good guitar. But Hendrix was among my favorite of them. He just did things that nobody else did. He phrased things the way nobody else phrased and sang the way no one else sang. The whole band structure with a trio, with the the jazz drummer and the the bass that Noel projected i guess him and jimmy between the two of them i understand jimmy played some of that stuff on bass so yeah yeah it changed everything yeah 
as it did probably for everyone in that era. Tell me about that P-Funk Guitar Army tribute to Hendrix that came out in the 90s. You got two songs on there, Fly On and Pleasure with the Dirt Devil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a funny, that was a funny project. Uh, these guys came to me with the owners of the uh, recording studio called The Disc in, uh, in Michigan. I forget the city at and they were doing a tribute to Hendrix, and they figured that they would ask me to do a couple of songs, which they did. It just I knew the guys pretty well, and they knew what I did. And uh, it just kind of dropped into my lap, so to, so to speak. You know, Sometimes you hear about these things, and you wonder if they're ever going to really come through or whatever. And this one did. So I had uh, worked on Fly On prior. It was a... Fly On is a, a bunch of takes of some stuff that I used to play. I used to record everything. And I fused these two parts of fragments. They're fragments of, of songs or pieces together. And that became Fly On. Dirt Devil kind of came across uh, on the spot. We did that one on the spot. Gabe Gonzalez, Lige Curry, Amp Fiddler came in. And yeah. That's how that happened. I saw there's a killer version, live version of Fly On on YouTube somewhere. I think there's a bunch, but... Okay. <laughs> you were just ripping on it? Um, I think I know which one you're probably talking about. I'm going to... Blackbird McKnight Flies On, I think somewhere in New York. Yeah. Yeah, that was a hectic, but a very special night. Uh, the guitar and I just happened to agree on everything that we communicated to one another. And that's what came out. The sound of the amp was great. That was just one of those things. Yeah. I remember that night. Yeah. And that, that take of a fly on one of my favorites. Nice. Where does the nickname Blackbird come from? The nickname Blackbird came from when I was, kids playing with a band I think then known as Total Concept Unlimited or something something to that stretch the band later became Rolls Royce but I was called Blackbird because at that time I was getting a bunch of musical knowledge and playing with a bunch of bands even at that age and they never knew when I was going to fly away so they nicked me Blackbird because of that because they never knew when I was going to fly away, and they didn't. Nice. So how did you come to play with Herbie? That came through a taxi cab ride in Kansas. Kansas City, I think. And uh, I was taking the... We were in the outskirts of Kansas. There was no food and nothing. So I had to take this a taxi into the city. And the lady at the desk asked me if I wanted to share, or whoever was at the front desk, asked me, if I wanted to share a ride into the city with somebody, save some money, I said, sure. Well, the gentleman that I shared the taxi with happened to be Benny Maupin, who was uh, Herbie Hancock's reed man in the Sextet band, which was one of my favorite albums at the time. <laughs> and I met him, and he, we greeted each other, and I was just like stoked that I was in the taxi cab with Benny Maupin. You know, I was, wow. And we talked, and we talked for we talked all the way until we had to part company. When he got out of the taxi, he said, uh, 
you know what, one day we're going to play together. We're going to play in a band together. And I looked at him and I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, some years later, we stayed in touch after that taxi. We exchanged numbers and I would go to his house and um, I would help him with some comp compositions that he was writing for upcoming records and stuff like that. And I guess somewhere in there, Herbie wanted to start a spinoff band. I guess it was called the Headhunters, unbeknownst to me at the time, but they had me fly up to uh, Oakland to, uh, to play with the guys and see how it went. And apparently it went okay, because the rest is history. And you're on the Manchild record. Yes, sir. What songs? Uh, Sun Touch, and I don't remember the second one, but there's, there's another one, but I don't remember it. Sun Touch is the one I remember. But I'm not on uh, the one everybody thinks. Uh, hang up your hangups. That is not me. That's Wild Wild Watson. Sorry. So tell me about coming to play with P-Funk. How did that come together? Coming to play with P-Funk started with a relationship I had with a gentleman named Ron Brimbry. Um, he stayed across the street from the high school that I went to. And I think... I was one of the kind of guys that when I heard a guitar playing in somebody's house, I would go and knock on the door and see who it was and introduce myself and, you know, get acquainted with the, with the people that did it. So I, I know I heard him playing when walking back from high school, would knocked on his door and he had the exact same love of music and MO that I did from, from jazz and all the Hendrix stuff and Funkadelic which he turned me on to a lot more Funkadelic than I was aware of, which at the time I didn't know that he knew the uh, president of Thing Incorporated who was the management for George Clinton at the time. So me and this gentleman, Ron Brimbury, ran the streets for a long time until he finally took me to uh, Archie's house. The guy's name, forgive me, is Archie Ivey, president of Thing Incorporated at the time, who is a bass player as well. We went into his garage and we played, and um, he told me about a project that would probably be happening in the future. He didn't say the name of it or anything like that, but that project would come to be The Brides of Dr. Funkenstein. And uh, about the fall of 1978, the end of the summer, fall, something like that, they flew me to Detroit and I auditioned for The Brides and... The rest is history. So you've been with P-Funk a long time. What have some of the absolute highlights been? Being in that band, for one. Parliament Funkadelic, that was one of my three goals. My three goals in life uh, set, I guess, by the age of 13 was one to play with Herbie Hancock, one to play with Miles Davis, and the other was to play with P-Funk. So awesome. when I got there, what, you know, you dig in and you make the task as easy as possible and put in your best work. And hopefully I did that. Um, what's it like? What was it like? Being in one of the bands that you grew up listening to and traveling around with them and working with them. And that was great. I mean, it was nothing less than great. Uh, didn't pay very well at the time. <laughs> but, 
everything else was great. Yeah. Do you have any particular favorite songs to do? Yeah, favorite songs change, don't they? I mean, yeah. you like one thing at one particular point, and then you might come to a point where I'm digging this one now or whatever. So my get-off was, was to go up and see whatever George was going to call because some of the time there was no set list. So George would just get up on stage and call whatever he wanted to call. And, you know, depended on us to know the song and, and get through it. That was my favorite. We never knew what we were going to do, so <laughs> I, I like that. When you got to a certain part uh, where, where the show felt good on a consistent level, he would keep that set list. But, like, in the beginning of a tour or something like that, I never really knew what, what we were going to do. So Nice. So how many songs did you have to learn? Uh, them. Because, you know, the guys would ask me, too, uh, off stage. Gary Scheider, uh, Eddie Hazel, uh, Boogie. You know, you'd be sitting around, you'd be playing with your guitars and stuff, and somebody would say, you know this one, you know that one, or I'd start to play it off. And Gary would say, no, nope, wait a minute, hold it. All right, goes like this, let me show you. And, you know, I got a lot of that. I would make Gary play these parts, like, over and over again just to watch him do it. <laughs> <laughs> You guys opened with uh, Super Stupid and Beverly Mass this summer, which I was psyched. That's one of my favorites. Beverly. Yeah, I remember that show. Beverly, yeah. Wow, you were there. I was, yeah. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, it was a good show. It was a good show. So George Clinton famously told Eddie Hazel to play like he'd just been told his mother died for Maggot Brain. What's going hmm. through you when you do that live now? Does it? I don't have any particular thought in mind when I play other than get it right. <laughs> get it right. And I'm, you know, I, I think of things like where, what part of the stage I'm going to walk to, where the monitors, where I can't get the monitors. I really don't want to say this because I don't want engineers to hear because when people play, sometimes they stand right in front of the monitors. I don't do that. I will walk in the middle of the monitors or go in front of the monitors. Because sometimes the engineer guys will kill you. George will tell them where he wants the guitar. And they'll put it there. And in certain parts of the song, it, it, sometimes it's overkill. So I go in front of the monitors or wherever the monitors are not. You know, So those are the things I'm thinking about. Uh, other thing is don't do what you did last night. Don't do what you did the night before that. Don't do what you did the night before that, which I pretty much remember. I pretty much remember what, what I what I did. Because that was one of the most intense musical experiences I had. I was like, fuck, they're playing which one? Mag which one? Which Maggot one? Brain in both Where? Be Where? Beverly Where? and Kentucky. I saw those shows or this Kentucky. summer. Okay, that was like a couple of days ago. Uh, this was in the, in the summer, in August, in Lexington. I think I know which... What you're talking about? I wonder if that was the one where you had two gigs that day. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we still do that. But I was like, oh shit, Maggot Brain right in the middle of the set. And I mean, it floored me. And then, like, took a couple songs to get, like, back into having a good time, you know? In the case, maybe perhaps I did my job. Thank you. You did. So tell me about playing with Miles then. 
Ooh, one of the greatest and quickest experiences of all time. Uh, that was serious high. Come on, Miles Davis. The curtain draws, and you look out in a sold-out arena, and you're playing with Miles. That was great. That was really great. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of things, but mostly joy. Joy. Did Miles say anything to you? I mean, he was famous. He would call in the morning. He would call after the show in the morning and discuss with you what he wanted you to do. Yeah, he he did like he did it like that. He called me one time at the. He didn't make the rehearsals and uh, sound checks and all of that stuff. So when we rehearsed before the show, I guess somebody fast forward in the, the tape or whatever we did because he called me later. And this was during the time when I was trying, well, I was playing, trying to play blinding fast, as fast as I could, blah, blah. He told me to slow down. Um, he'd say, use this tone, this tone on this song, use this sound this, this time, or try something this or try that or whatever it were. It's stuff like that. Nothing limpier, no, nothing like that. So I reread his uh, autobiography last year, and I read it when I was a teenager, and that really changed my life. Just his thoughts on music, you know. Oh, life. dude. <laughs> yeah. Was it five times? He changed everything like around five times, something like that. Yeah, I was just listening to uh, Miles Smiles the other day with one of the band members, and. Yeah, what are, what are your favorite Miles records, then? Which aren't. Well, you know, like I said, from the cradle. So one of the ones that stands out is probably Sketches of Spain, Miles Ahead, Concierto de Arnwins, uh Kind of Blue. But then you get to the other period where you have Dolores, uh, Miles Smiles, Nefertiti, and Bitches Brew. When I heard Bitches Brew, I was, I was floored. Uh, I mean, listening to him, from all the way back then and him changing directions to bitches brew. I was just like, okay, this dude is, <laughs> is off this planet. I uh, saw so every decade, every change that he did. I, I liked, I, I liked the on the corner period. I liked that the period where I played with him for those couple of gigs. I liked that. I really wanted to do some, uh, some of the other stuff, but no, I I I liked it. I, I liked everything he did because everything he did went somewhere else. It was it was nothing like he had did before. So he just kept changing and evol evolving as it were. I liked that. Yeah. So when did you decide to make your own solo record? When I left, well, I would that notion has always been in my head. Um while touring like even during the 80s i think as early as 85 86 i got a tascam uh four track cassette player and i took it everywhere i recorded so much music i recorded a bunch of stuff i just never stopped recording um after that i got an eight track and then i got a mpc 60 i got a keyboards 
guitars. I got a drum set, and I used to take all of that shit on the road. I used to have to go to the cargo section of the airport and pick up my gear because I send it to every hotel there. Every hotel we went to, I'd, I'd go get my gear and set up and record. So tell me about making about funkin' time. <laughs> Lindy, Lindy, I enjoyed the process. Um, it was Some of it was tough because I did it at home, and it was my first go-round at uh, making a record. So frequencies and stuff like that, studio stuff, I didn't know what I did know. I'm going to make this record. This is record. This is playback, blah, blah, blah. I went through all of that process. And I think sonically it could have been better, but I was satisfied. I was very satisfied with the, with, with the way it came out. I actually lost the first, uh, the first batch of the album. I was just getting ready to mix and send, send it in. And some kind of way, the folder got erased. And I could never recover it. The whole album. Oof. But that, well, yeah, that only, I think, one song I wish I could have found that would have been PTPB. There was a version of PTPB, if you know what that is, that was yep. out of this world on the, uh, on the, other, on the other takes. But, but I couldn't find it. So I had to do the whole album again. Which was actually to my advantage because I, again, I enjoyed the process and it was just better. It, it, the whole overall project came out much better to me. So, yeah. Blessing in disguise. Blessing in disguise. Yeah, that's there. You go. That's perfect. We're still looking for that other versions, though. <laughs> Do you have plans for another solo record? Of course, yeah. I've actually started recording. I'm, I've got a lot of material. It's just being satisfied with it, which is, to me, one of the curses of having a home studio because I'm never satisfied. I always want to do something better. I always want to do something bigger, try a new sound, something, always. So I have a lot of songs tracks, ideas in the can that are putting them together and coming up with the appropriate takes and mixing and mastering and boom. Now, are you doing it all yourself? Yes, sir. Drums, bass, everything? Yes, sir. Oh, wow. Whoa. On about, about Funkin' Time, uh, Danny Madrosian played keyboards. And sang on at least two, three tunes. Uh, Funkin' Where You Belong, he played, he sang. Number, number three, he played keyboards. That might be it. Yeah, that's, those are them. Yeah. Other than that, I did everything myself. I thought you knew that. No. Read the liner notes. There's not too many liner notes on there. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> so when did you start playing drums? Uh, probably around the same time I started playing guitar, uh, electric guitar, about 13, 14. I got fascinated with the drums. Every time the drummer got up from the drums, I'd get on and just bang until I made sense of them. Yeah. I love drums about as much as I love playing guitar. Oh, wow. 
So are there any other uh, collaborations we haven't talked about that you're particularly proud of? Still recording with George. Um, other collaborations are in the works, but I won't talk about them yet because they're not solidified or whatever it were. There's a bunch of stuff in the works, but as they come to play, I, I will divulge the plans and let everyone know what's going on. Yeah, there's there's stuff happening. Plus, I'm doing this new one. I, I think I have time this year. The reason I didn't come up with an, another a CD earlier is because I don't have time. I, I went back on the road with George, and when I went back on the road, I discovered I didn't have that much time. Like, I thought I I'd be able to, yeah, you know, I thought I'd be able to do it, but I, I wasn't. So I think if we got some, some big windows this year. So yeah, with the retirement, <laughs> retirement. Oh, okay. So what's coming up that you can talk about? Uh, Miles electric band. Uh, I'm, I'm playing with the Miles electric band. I don't know if they on any publication. That's a, a group of guys that got together and put a tribute uh, band together. I'm not sure if they want to call it tribute band. Uh, it's not a tribute band, okay? <laughs> For lack of a better word, but in honor of Miles. So, Vince Wilburn, Anton Roney, Bobby Irving, Butch, <laughs> Daryl Jones from the Stones, Bunyango from everyone's uh, notable Stevie Wonder. And the trumpet players are interchangeable now. Trumpet players are interchangeable. DJ Logic, the percussions are somewhat interchangeable as well. Yeah. I'm missing, there are like 10, 12 of us all together, but those are the core guys that I've worked with um, over the past. So we're they put a band together. I couldn't make a lot of the dates last year because I was out with George so much. But this year, I, sh I should be able to attend more more shows. So, what sort of stuff do you guys do? Miles. What else? <laughs> Any particular period? Miles, though? Davis. Miles Davis stuff from the Electric period, pretty much. But we've done uh, footprints, and we and we put a new spin on it like never tt is done in six eight and we use electric instruments and stuff like that with some of the old songs of the uh, other other past genres people people need to see this energy it's a good band cool it's a really good band uh, tell me about playing with the chili peppers hot flash in a pan in and out uh i did four gigs and and uh, I, I can tell you one thing, being with P-Funk for so many years and P-Funk having f filled up auditoriums and stuff like that, same thing with the Chili Peppers. The audience was not the same audience that I was accustomed to at a P-Funk show. That was the thing that alarmed me at first. I looked out at the audience and it was full. I was like, wow. It was just a different audience you know, from what I had been accustomed to. So not a whole lot. We rehearsed, which we always did. See, people don't realize that I had been in the band like maybe twice before when Hillel had quit. And uh, they would call me and we'd rehearse. And uh, the day before the show, they'd coax Hillel to come back into the band. 
And uh, so that was that. So it was like more of the same to me, uh. except this time we did gigs. Yeah. Those are some tough shoes to fill. <laughs> Those tough shoes to fill. He has a sound and a style all of his own. You know? mm. Yeah, it's, that's pretty much all my questions, except for my final one. Do you have anything else you want to mention while we're chatting? Watch for the next album, which will be ready. When it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will not say when, because I am very particular about what goes in. This, especially this one, because sonically, I want it to be different from the first one. So I'm taking extra special care to learn detail about the recording process, frequencies and stuff like that, which is a more work. It's, <laughs> it's, it's more work. What's your main guitar these days? Oh, trick question. No, <laughs> not trick question. Well, right now I'm playing on a Fender Stratocaster, Fender Elite Strat, with a Bartolini Pickups custom design for moi. Nice. And that's it right now. I'm playing a Fender Strat and uh, looking around, trying to get in, in touch with the Fender people. Hello, Fender people. <laughs> And that was the last question? No, no, my last question is, say you had stolen a space shuttle and were flying it directly into the sun, what would you want to be listening to? Oh, my God. Third stone from the sun right now. That's perfect. Or the stars that played with Laughing Sam Dice. One of those two. You talking space? That's what you're talking about for me. That was great. Such a nice guy, and I really enjoyed hearing his thoughts on music. I'll be posting some clips in the show notes at thecounterforce.net, and I'd like to thank everybody for listening for your support over the past year. I'm going to be putting the Counterforce on hold because I've gotten real busy doing comedy, but I really appreciate everyone tuning in and listening. If you want to check out what I'm doing with comedy, I perform as Young Southpaw, and Popbollocks.com recently described Southpaw as from the existential thread that ties Jean-Paul Sartre to John Bon Jovi, to the skinny on what's floating in TLC's waterfalls, and the possibility that Al Pacino is coaching boxing kangaroos in space, wise fool Southpaw's ramblings lead listeners on a surreal journey through doors they didn't even know existed into a highly original, deeply funny land of pop culture confusion. The Young Southpaw podcast, along with the At The Movies album, videos, and a bunch more are all up at youngsouthpaw.com. And I've been doing gigs in New York, Connecticut, and Boston every week, so come out if you're in the area. Or let me know if you want me to come perform in your neck of the woods. I'd love to travel. So thanks for listening to Counterforce, y'all. And we're going to play out on that version of Fly On we were talking about. I grabbed the audio off YouTube, and I'll post a click to the video, too. It was recorded at SUNY Oneonta in New York, October 14th, 2006. So here's a killer live rendition of Blackbird McKnight's Fly On. Yeah.